on the Empire Podcast this week. We're working nine to five, admittedly with a three-hour lunch around 12, followed by a screening as a comedy legend that is Lily Tomlin drops by while there's usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that, contrary to popular belief, has not been violated by a bear. Not been violated by a bear. Take that as read. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. Just two more to go before Christmas. Blimey! What can I possibly get for this week's colleagues of such lethal cunning? For our geek queen, it's simple. Some perfume drawn from the tears of a dragon and some knitted sweaters so those supernatural boys can cover themselves up. Hello, Helen <laughs> Hara. Would you, be, would you be happy with that? I would be extraordinarily happy with that. Thank that you. That sounds pretty good to me. Oh, wait. I get the supernatural boys in the sweaters, right? That That's part of it. Well, the... you get them in the sweaters so you then can get them out of the sweaters. <laughs> oh. And what can I possibly get our returning art house guru, a man who is back in the booth after seemingly months away exploring the lost ancient art of subtitling. I get him Blu-rays of the Cahir de Cinema's top ten of the year, which was revealed this week. Uh, so some crackers on there. Symmetry of Splendor, mm-hmm. Inherent Vice, Paul Plot, Mall Cop 2. Mm-hmm. Like Wait a minute. Well, it's, no, check this, Helen. It's, Wasn't it's Inherent Vice really on there? <laughs> they wouldn't go for a dumb comedy on that list. Phil <laughs> <laughs> Simon, Merry Christmas. How are Hi, you? thanks. Where were you? Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 is actually a... It's a little-known fact that it's an art house gem. It's a policier. <laughs> it's a mall... I mean, he's not A mall-based policier. It's a, it's a terrible film. Don't give me that for Christmas. <laughs> Thank you very much. No, we've bought it now. Yeah, it's too late. Yeah, we didn't, didn't keep the receipt. And it was a, it was a magical Blu-ray shop that magical. Uh, appears only once, once every hundred years, so I can't bring it back. No, I'm going to wait for the um, jewel pack, Cemetery of Splendor, Uncle Boon Me, director's cuts. <laughs> so hold fire. What was the question? How am I? Yeah. yeah, really good. It's very nice back in the booth. It hasn't felt the same without you. Thanks, Chris. And neither it felt better. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> much, much, much improvement. Well, let's have a question, which has been sent in from Australia. Right. The oh. country has got together and sent us a question. Seth Cornwall says, G'day from Down Under. If push came to shove, who is the best British villain in a Hollywood movie? I'm thinking either Rickman or Burkhoff with a knowing nod at Hiddleston. Keep up the good work. Yeah, definitely Hiddleston should be in that discussion, shouldn't he? He's He's really, really good at being bad. Well, he's managed to survive that Jaguar advert, hasn't he? Yes. Um, so Jaguar did an advert uh, about what, a year ago, year and a half ago, where the you know, three big British bad guys mm-hmm. uh, came together. So it was Mark Strong, Tom Hiddleston and Ben Kingsley, mm-hmm. Sir Ben Kingsley. And they were racing. He was like some sort of mastermind. He was orchestrating stuff. And Hiddleston and Strong were racing each other towards this big country house. And I guess the idea was to see which of them would be the baddest of the bad. Oh, so bad. In, 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 in the next mm. advert. Uh, you see Hiddleston feeding Ben Kingsley's bow tie <gasps> to a jaguar, which indicates that he killed Ben Kingsley. Mm. Uh, Mark Strong, presumably just in the toilet. And Nick Holt's in it as well. That's directed by Tom Hooper, isn't it? No way. Yeah, I think so. I think I'm right in saying so. No way. Yeah. Really? I, I wasn't way. convinced by it. What's, do they have a plan? What are they doing? They're yeah, just they're, driving they're around. Yeah, Drive around in cool stuff and stay in cool places yeah. and wear nice suits. Uh, ben Kingsley's plan, he's got, surrounded by banks of television monitors seems to be to recreate Sliver um, in a slightly sinister fashion. Wow. Uh, but beyond that, I don't know what they're up to. Mm. But they're all good. I guess that's it. That's riffing on this idea that British people make great villains. They do. Yes, though. that's exactly what it riffs on. So, you know, it's interesting. I remember, I remember somebody arguing that around the time of The Lion King, I think that, that Disney was racist because the jackals, Whoopi Goldberg voiced one of the jackals, or the, were they jackals? Anyway, them. Hyenas. The hyenas. hyenas. And, and that this was terribly racist. And someone else pointed out, well, they've 
always pretty much had British baddies in Disney movies, so maybe they're just racist against the British. Mm. And as an Irish person, who could blame them? And they're hey, all terrible. Helen, who's the bad guy in The Lion King? It's Jeremy Irons, who's a, who I was about to mention is a very good mm. British baddie. Gary Oldman, another one who deserves a mention. Uh, Leon, obviously, the fifth element, personal favourite of mine, yeah. even though he's not particularly British either. But he's, he's just great at being bad. When's he been a good British bad guy? Because um, even in Dracula, he's not. You know, his his Dracula <laughs> is is a lot. Uh, he's pretty much. He's pretty foreign. Lost ocean the land <laughs> How about Lost in Space? Is he American in that? I no, mean, yeah. Okay, I, I'm yeah, talking about say, Lost yeah, in Space. That sure. was where I went wrong. Why not? <laughs> what I find interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'm not. No, I'm not going to bang on about Marvel. No, I'm going to. No, stop. don't. I'm going to stop. Good. Amazing. Stop. Okay. What I find interesting about Tim Roth and the Incredible Hulk is that he's got his British accent. Yeah. Okay, well okay. done then. But you restrained yourself somewhat. Um, David Tennant, obviously, and Jessica Jones, he's keeping his British He's accents. very, very, very bad in that. Yeah. Anthony Hopkins, uh, obviously, a classic. Christopher Lee, Ooh. great but British bad guy. But I as know. Brits, as Brits. As Brits. As Brits, because uh, Tony Hopkins, Tony, hello, Tony, he's done here. No, hello, Don, he's done here. Uh, he goes, he's as Hannibal Lecter, he's not British. Yeah, okay, so, well, you know. Christopher Lee, though, yes, because I think Sarah Man's British, I think we can all agree on that. Daniel Day-Lewis, maybe? Oh, Helen, you know as well as I do, he's Irish. So that's, yeah. that's not... That's not... <laughs> start a war, shall we? I've got the correct answer to this. Bring it. It's Craig, Craig Fairbrass. Craig Fairbrass. Craig Fairbrass. That's, that's, yeah. Uh... In Cliffhanger. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because he's English, he's yeah. a Cockney, and he's into football, like Trevor Slattery. Oh. Ah, oh, Trevor. And... Yeah. I think David Tennant and Jessica Jones. Being into football is a sign of being English, A, English, and B, kind of evil is in a movie. into football and Jessica Jones? I'm yeah, still because yeah, he goes to the flat, the apartment, yeah, and he's, he's watching, watching the football the and ordering people around behind no, him. No, no, it's rugby. He's You're rugby. absolutely right. It's rugby. Good point. Mm. Well, you've completely destroyed Phil's well, there's entire theory. there's my theory. theory. Yeah. Oh. Can you have a theory if it's just two things? Well, Craig no. Fairbrass and Cliffhanger does want to use Stallone's head as a football, doesn't he? That's one of the things he says. Yeah, no, he talks but, about soccer. Yeah, he's he's interested in, uh, as, as a bad guy. Because the bad guy in that film is John Lithgow. Yeah, he has is. A very good English accent, although he thinks it's a terrible English accent. But it's you know it's 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 quite hammy, obviously quite vaudevillian. But I like him in that film. Mm. There's an interesting sideshow as well of Americans playing evil Brits. So the the late great Brian James, who of course was in Blade Runner, is the henchman of Jack Palance in Tango and Cash, and he has a terrible Cockney accent in that he's a bit like I'll cut your throat, Tango, you fucking wanker. You know, he's a bit he's a bit like that. <sighs> Have we said Ray Fiennes in Schindler's List? We probably should. True, but again... Do you think we should? Or again, not? He's, he's so you're being very... You think it has to be playing an oh, English person. Yeah. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, yeah, to clarify the rules here because we got, oh. we got into a lot of trouble, didn't we, with the, the staircase thing? Because was it indoor? Was it outdoor? Was it a staircase? Is it a circular staircase? Let's be very clear about this. The best British villain in a Hollywood movie. So I'm saying British actor playing... Oh, fuck. Wait a minute, that rules out Hans Gruber. But, uh-huh. but it allows a sheriff of Nottingham. It does, so that's so, okay. okay. Although, I mean, he would have been really Norman if you think about it. So, I mean, the question <laughs> is, which country was he born in? We don't know. All right, okay. But there is something about us. We're very cold and calculating as uh, we as are. A, as a people. Yeah, you're right. Right. you are. Yeah. Oh, sorry, you're hiding behind your Irish passport. Certainly am. Right, okay. <laughs> Elizabeth Hurley and Bedazzled. <laughs> Who would you cast as the Satan? You really threat. ruined a very expensive microphone there with a spit take. If you want to, if you want to cast Satan right now in a, in a big movie, who would you cast? Who'd make the best Satan? <laughs> Why did you have in mind? Oh, so many people. <laughs> no, it has to be an actor. It has to be an actor. I think uh, Tom Hiddleston would make a very good Satan. Actually, I guess Loki's kind of on the way there. He would. 
Yeah, he'd be quite seductive. The bear from the Revenant. Yes, I'll be interesting how much work it gets from the, from this Ferrara. We'll we'll get onto we'll, we'll get onto that. Well, Paddington Fur, too. Aura. Right. Oh no. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, next week. So yeah. I'm just saying that he could be he could be a good villain for um, Paddington too. Who knows? <laughs> so all right. So we're saying British villain, British actor playing British. Oi. Oh, rules like Loki. Well, yeah, it does, doesn't it? Or are we saying British actor playing someone who's clearly British, even though they're German? <laughs> you just want to get Hans Gruber back in there. Oh, Hans Gruber's the answer to pretty much all cinematic questions. Oh, I see. Jason Isaacs in The Patriot. Okay, then. Very good answer. Done. Very good answer. That's very, very good. Doesn't James Earl Jones play Darth Vader with a British accent? Not really. Does you he? Think? I think he does. All right. You have failed me for the last time. That's British. It's very hard to tell. He just sounds like Darth Vader. Most of the uh, the Imperial people, the bad guys mm. in Star Wars, and I don't know if you guys know this, but there's another one coming out soon. What? Are British. Mm, the Emperor. Yeah, the Emperor is British. Grant Moff Tarkin is British. Of course, whenever Vader dies at the end of Return of the Jedi and the mask is taken off him and it's Sebastian Shaw, the, the British actor, he's clearly British at that point. So what Hollywood is saying, what George Lucas and Hollywood are saying is that evil Brits are so evil and so corruptive that they will take an American accent, which is what I'm reliably informed yeah. Hayden Christensen is attempting <laughs> in Attack of the Clones yeah. and Revenge of the Sith. But over the years, he's so you know, devoured by yeah. his Britishness that he becomes evil and he becomes British. There are other examples of that maybe going the other way, though, because, you know, as we all know, in the How to Train Your Dragon series, the young people of the town have American accents, but as they grow older, they become Scottish. <laughs> so uh, so there is precedent for, for changing your accent with age. <laughs> Um, I do love that. I'm going to throw a couple more British bad guys out there. So okay. I think. Ian Holm, an alien. Yeah. We don't know whether the alien itself is British. We're going to say, you know. No. Probably. But Ian Holm, as Ash, is very, very British. Charles Dance. Charles Dance and the Golden Child. Charles and Dance and the Golden Child. Last and Last Action, Action Hero. Absolutely. And Game of Thrones as well. Basil Rathbone. Yeah. And the Adventures of, uh, I was going to say Ford Fairlane, but it's probably not that. Robin Hood. And who can forget Bruce Payne uh, in Passenger 57? I mean, who? The man to whom Wesley Snipes says the immortal words, always bet unread. So, um, there it is. Do you want any more? I think we're good. Who's the best? Who's the best? Money with your mouth is O'Hara. Who's the best British villain? That's the question. Who's the best? Not The question that wasn't just <gasps> list a bunch of villains. We didn't was, say Laurence Olivier in Marathon Man, so I'm going to say that. Okay. Well, he's a German though, isn't he? Damn it. Well, what, what are you doing? Are, what, what? Are the rules? what are the rules? Are I don't know. Well, in, that case, in that case, I'm going back to I'm going back to Alan Rickman. I'm going back to the Sheriff of Nottingham. And I'm just going to pretend he was definitely born in England. He called off Christmas, for God's sake. Christmas. Yeah. Ben Kingsley's Don Logan. Oh. It's not really a Hollywood movie, is it? But no, but... It counts. It's fine. That is an absolute cracker. I'm going to go for... This is a real tough one. Sean Bean is Alec Trevelyan in Goldeneye. Incredible. <laughs> There Finish the job, James. For England. Amazing. 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 Right. We've ruined that. Uh, Seth Cornwall, sorry about that. But uh, if you think you know who the best British villain in a Hollywood movie is, then do send it in. Or Sean Bean and Pedro again. He wouldn't call himself British. Here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> do send him in to us. Uh, we're on Twitter at Empire Magazine. Use hashtag Empire Podcast. You can also Facebook us where we're at Empire Magazine. And you can email us, podcast at Empire Online. Com. Okay, so we have some movie news. Let's. Let's have some movie news now. Uh, so last week we talked at great length yeah, we did. about the Captain America colon. Because we should be fair. We should be fair, Helen. Yeah. For 
over a year now, we've been saying Batman v Superman, colon, Dawn of Justice. <laughs> and it never gets and less funny. Never said, <laughs> we've never said Captain America, colon, Civil War, but it's there. It's there. It is there. And in the interest of fairness, I think I'm going to surprise a few people in this podcast, but in the interest of fairness, we're not going to call it Captain America, colon, Civil War. I mean, sure, you can do that. <laughs> so anyway, so the Captain America trailer came out last week. We talked about it at great length. And now this week, woke up this morning to find that the Batman v Superman colon Dawn of Justice trailer had dropped in similar fashion on the Jimmy Kimmel show. So woke up this morning to find the internet agog arguing amongst itself. There's a new one for the internet uh, about the Batman Superman trailer. Uh, some people saying it was awful. Some people saying it was good. Where do we stand in it? Phil, have you seen it? Yeah, I've seen it a few times. A few times? Yeah. Why have you seen it a few times? Because I thought you were going to ask me if I'd seen it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's okay. make a sensible way of preempting that question. He turned on captioning, so he had the effect of <laughs> subtitles without the reality. You, you kind of, you're in bed and bleary-eyed and you check Twitter and there it is and you watch it. It doesn't really make any sense. So you dust yourself off, have a shower, have a coffee, go to work, sit down, watch it again. And it still doesn't make any sense, really. Um, the, I, look, I don't love this trailer particularly much. It just all feels a bit flat and unfun and a little bit too close to Man of Steel for me, which is a film I really didn't like very much. But isn't there a hint of fun within the trailer? Yeah, but the the, the fun stuff sort of... Yeah, there's a little... I did enjoy the um, the Wonder Woman quip that they both make. That was quite nicely delivered. I don't know. Neither of these actors I associate with, with that kind of levity and that kind of sort of sparky... They're, they're both bringing a lot of weight to the roles. It's and Henry Cavill sort of, and Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck and Henry Cavill, yeah, Absolutely. thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a lot of it. It feels a bit weighted, a bit weighty for my liking. And then along comes... Jesse Eisenberg, is that who you're thinking? Along comes Jesse Eisenberg. He's, just, he's literally just popped in here. Yeah, along comes Jesse Eisenberg and he feels like he's in a slightly different movie. He feels like he's in a completely different movie, if we're honest. I mean, I quite enjoyed him in the trailer, but he was having a good time, and no one else seems to be. So I just kind of didn't doesn't, really get that. Doesn't that reflect, though, Lex Luthor in the film, who presumably is having a good time when no one else is? You know, Superman's all like, Sure, oh, maybe. I must, oh, I, oh, Batman. And Batman's like, oh. Yeah, I mean, it's weird, isn't it, the, the characterization here, I think, because there's what I'm pretty sure from the, from the teaser we saw during the week and from this trailer now, there's something that I think is a dream sequence. It's like Batman is having anxiety dreams about Superman, which I'm sure Freudians are going to have a lot of fun with. But it does seem that Batman is literally dreaming about this sort of Superman as a dictator. And, you know, that, that scene with Batman hanging up by his wrists in a trench coat. Now, that that looks very like the Batman in Red Sun, where Superman is a dictator. He's basically the ruler of a Soviet world. And you've got people kneeling to Superman, which is such a fundamental not-Superman thing that it boggles my mind. So let's assume all of that bit is a dream. We, I think we can, not relatively safely, but I think we can assume that. Yeah. As other people have pointed out on the internet this week, there is an action figure from that sequence already, and it is called Nightmare Batman. There we so go. With a, with a K. Uh, <laughs> so they're strong pun game, but so, also... So that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad of that, because if that was reality in this film, then that would show such a fundamental misunderstanding of the character that I would literally be out the door, like I'm just gone. That's just not Superman. Having said that, if it is a dream, then you've just got this, presumably Batman's hearing all sorts of wrong stuff about Superman if this is what he thinks Superman is. Misinformation, and if he's the world's greatest detective, shouldn't he be better than that? And also, you've got Clark Kent on the other end of the spectrum, who doesn't know who Bruce Wayne is, having gone to Gotham to cover something important, which seems a little bit 
lacking in journalistic integrity. Um, and, mm. and and secondly, seems to be needling him about vigilantism, which, as Wayne correctly points out, mm. is totally, hypocritical. totally hypocritical. Mm. And again, just doesn't seem very Clark Kent. It doesn't seem like something he would say. I don't know. Unless, of course, because I'm going to surprise a few people now. <gasps> I like the trailer. <gasps> and I think it's a good, effective trailer. And I know that I've been somewhat cynical about this movie in the past, but I think this really sells it. And it, it finishes with a hero shot that is pretty much like, now give me all your money kind of thing. Is with, the, the world's um, finest. Superman, yeah, Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman. Admittedly, a lot of people said this already on the internet. And by the way, spoilers and earmuffs if you haven't seen the trailer. Whoops. Um, but if you have seen the trailer, then you'll know that it ends with... Um, Batman and Superman seemingly saved by Wonder Woman who has appeared with her indestructible shield to deflect an energy ray from a character that we think we pretty much know is Doomsday. Yeah. Um, but I, I really like the end of the trailer. It finishes with three of them together and I just think this movie's going to make more money than God. It's, it's going to be... But... Yeah, I, I get the, the iconicness of that shot. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Could Wonder Woman have maybe done with a line? I would argue yes, if she's going to be a major part of the story, or even if she isn't, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but it's, um, it's meant to be a surprise. It's meant it to be a surprise. Is, um, if it's a surprise, they shouldn't show us. If it isn't a surprise, they should show us. Like, it, you can't have your cake and eat it a little but th- bit. No, but I think that. it's a surprise within the context of the trailer. And if she'd appeared earlier, then you might be expected... But we've seen her on. already in previous I know, but the, publicity. The, no trailer... This tra- say this trailer exists in a vacuum, and suddenly the fact that Wonder Woman turns up, that's interesting to me. The line at the end, the lines at the end are, are funny. The fact that the trailer does reveal clearly, and we knew this was going to happen anyway, that Batman Superman, Batman v Superman, that they have put aside their differences yeah. by the end of the, the movie, clearly. Well, like, in fairness, the, the second part you know, of the title does give that away. It like, does. The second part of the title is Dawn of Justice. That kind of gives away that by the end of the movie, Batman and Superman are not going to be fighting anymore. Like, people are calling that sort of a spoiler in it, and it, it massively isn't. Yeah, I've also they've seen some that people work. say that they've felt that they've seen the entire film now. Yeah. I don't feel that at all. I think there's a lot to be, still a lot, lot that they're not There sure is, there's at least another 168 minutes. Precisely, and unless... <laughs> I reckon. Unless, unless, unless it's, it's just, a really unless short Unless it's just on, a, on an endless loop or a Garth Marenghi style, they didn't have enough footage. <laughs> <laughs> so they're just running everything slow motion. <laughs> or bats on a string. It's <laughs> a great line of Garth Marenghi. We, you know, we, we had some episodes running as many as eight minutes short, so we had to use a lot of slow motion. We tried to keep it away from dialogue where possible. It's <laughs> 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 just genius. But I quite like There's something about this trailer that worked for me. I thought it was very effective. I like the uh, the meeting of Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne. I know I'm, I'm a Marvel guy, but I'm also, I've, I am also also grew up reading a lot of DC stuff and I love Batman as a character and I love a lot of the Superman stuff Red Sun and the uh, Superman for All Seasons by Jeff Loeb all that sort of stuff and so seeing those two characters meet for the first time did give me a little bit of a, a, a funny a funny tummy but I would say you said why does Clark Kent not know who Bruce Wayne is and you could say that he is playing up to the persona of Clark Kent as a bit of a a dunderhead. Well, I mean, okay. We, we know he knows who Bruce Wayne is. First of all, I don't think a, a dunderhead newspaper reporter is particularly a thing that rings true to modern audiences. And second of all, Not I don't think Henry Cavill has ever looked like a dunderhead. And I don't think he's going to convince us as he, a dunderhead. He successfully played a dunderhead in Stardust. I mean... He 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 portrayed a bully in Stardust. He's a bit of an idiot as well. I think I think he can successfully play 
an idiot. But also, he's just doing it for the, the benefit of the other guy. Once he's inside, it's quite clear he knows who Bruce Wayne is. And we don't know what the context of this is, a, a, is of that scene. I'd be fascinated to see, once we get it underway, whether at this point he knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman and whether Bruce Wayne knows that he is Superman. There's a little bit of a twinkle in both their eyes. There is, isn't there? Now, I'm a commando guy, so you have to correct me, correct me if, <laughs> I'm, told if I'm going wrong here. Pants, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but the thing that I like about these is there's, there's really four specific personas for these characters, right? There's Superman, Clark Kent, Bruce Wayne, and Batman. And I just think Don't that you're Kevin. seeing one persona here. They're both kind of the same in both their guises. They're just weighed down by stuff. And they're kind of, you know, they're mm. just lumbered all this responsibility and it's so kind of portentous. And I think the thing I really liked about the Christopher Nolan Batman films was that kind of flighty playboy trying to pretend he's having fun probably isn't Bruce Wayne that Christian Bale delivers. And I like the sort of slightly disheveled, slightly kind of a bit late for everything Christopher Reeve of, of, of Superman. And yeah. I'm not seeing either of those personas True. on the screen here. I'm just seeing a lot of people that are worried about stuff and having too many nightmares and should really be seeing a psychiatrist. <laughs> and I think superhero cinema is getting a bit bogged down in this kind of like, you know, the number of times we mention Freud's name when we talk about superhero films is ridiculous. <laughs> it isn't supposed to yeah. be like that. You Do know, you we can watch Cemetery of Splendor if we want to, if we want to get deep Again. with Uncle Boomy. But... This is supposed to be a bit more fun than that. And I think the only person that's bringing that persona to this is the man whose name I just, for some reason, totally can't Jesse remember Eisenberg. today. Thank you so much. Sorry, Jesse Eisenberg. But he's the guy that is doing what I think Christian Bale did in The Dark Knight a little bit. He's bringing that kind of slightly maverick. And you'd hope that the Joker would bring to this particular franchise as well. But I want to see a bit of that from Bruce Wayne. I don't want him to be this sort of broken, stoop, middle-aged guy that's carrying, you know, six o'clock shadow to a dinner. You know, it's noon. just... At yeah. noon, yeah. And I get that he's got probably quite a testosterone dude, but it's, yeah. it's too much. It's fair enough. Reeves Clark Kent is one of the great comic creations in many ways. It just, yeah, I, I, I am on board with that. I do think that Lex Luthor is, is putting it on a little bit. But with, then you see him as a mad scientist at the end where he's yeah. not on public display and he's still in pretty, like, manic mode compared to the other two. But he's not playing for laughs at the end. I think the bit at the end when he pokes Amy Adams in the forehead, Lois Lane in the forehead, and says a line I've never quite understood, even though I've seen the trailer about mm. three times. He says something like, about psychotic, I'm not quite sure. That's a clearly different Lex Luthor from the uh, the beginning of, of the trailer. The interesting thing about this trailer for me is that it really does show Batman and Bruce Wayne to be a big old rich racist who basically wants illegal aliens to be banished. I mean, I can just imagine him in his Batcave furiously updating his Gotham first Facebook page and, uh, and railing <laughs> against people from, uh, from Krypton. Uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to say, can we take his side in this one? Because it, it does seem to be setting him up as the... Uh, GKIP candidate. Yeah. Well, I think they're trying to they're trying to bend over backwards to get your sympathy for Batman, aren't they? With the with the anxiety dreams, as we say, and the flashbacks to the attack on Metropolis and why he's so angry and la la la. And yeah, Superman. I mean, remember this did start off way back as a Man of Steel sequel. <laughs> Do you remember? Do you remember that? Not really. And no, no one does. Least of all the filmmakers, because you know Superman doesn't seem to be on what we've seen so far, which is obviously only a couple of minutes. Doesn't seem to be getting much love are from going, anyone. Are you going full Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. Uh, you you uh, you are intending to have some uh, Superman in your uh, Superman movie. Exactly. That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of what I want. Yeah. But uh, okay. we have, well, there's a lot more to see. You know, more we know see. there are other superheroes in here we haven't met yet. Yet to be convinced, however. True. Fair. Is that okay? I think this film's going to look amazing. Uh, you know, that's it's going to have definitely lack going for it. But I, I will say, I woke up this morning and when I said the internet was arguing amongst itself, it really wasn't. I mean, it was. I woke up, my Twitter feed was just filled with people going, 
that was rubbish. That looks not great. I kind of liked it. I thought it was an effective trailer. And, you know, you know they've, they've, got, they've got my... I think a lot uh, of people got high on Christopher Nolan's in-camera effects and the real world that he created, and this yeah. doesn't look like that. Well, yeah, the, there's an interesting thing about whether they've learned the lessons of Man of Steel because they do seem to be destroying umpteen city blocks at the end. But. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be slightly generous to them here. I think what's happening is there are dream sequences and flashbacks, and otherwise, the major devastation seems to be in an already devastated area. I'm hoping that they don't kill another city. I'm prepared to be fair. I, th- I feel like that maybe they have taken that on board, and maybe we're not seeing another city completely destroyed. Fingers okay. crossed. All right. Well, I liked it. Hey, you so know, shoot me. Still hoping for the best. It's it's kind of weird. It's it's almost like we're in some sort of opposite world or <laughs> yeah. some kind of upside down universe. If only there was some sort of Superman frame of reference we would have to to describe if, this. If only. That's bizarre. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's move on. What else do we have that's happened this week in the world of movie news? Oh, Chris McQuarrie's directing Mission Impossible 6. He's announced that, hasn't he? He has, yeah. Now, you were kind of against this. Not that you didn't love Rogue Nation, but I remember you saying that you kind of hoped that they would keep the tradition for the franchise of having a new director each time. Was I? Yeah, you did. Now, now, now that it's happened, are you, are you happy? Are you not happy? I mean, we, we do like Chris McQuarrie. We mm. think he's great. And Rogue Nation was was pretty fantastic. When did I say that? When Rogue Nation, when this was first rumoured. Oh, interesting. I think it's a good idea. I mean, it would have been nice to continue the the tradition, Mm. but all the other directors are busy doing superhero movies. So, (laughs) I guess... And I know how you hate superhero movies, so... (laughs) not another one. Also, clearly, Macquarie and Cruz love working together. They They trust each other. I personally think that Rogue Nation is the best of of the franchise. No, it isn't. uh, Phil doesn't agree with that. What do you think it is? Ghost Protocol. Ghost Protocol. And why did we have this conversation? I said something different. Oh, I said the first one. First one, yeah, was very good. But I think this is this has got more at the time. It's more, yeah. But you said that. But I think film blockbusters have changed in that time a lot, haven't they? Mm. In terms of pacing, you probably couldn't do a big sort of tentpole that was quite as noirish and deliberate as that now. But then I loved it. It's amazing watching the first one. How low octane it is. I mean, there's literally no action at all until the biggest action in the movie until the helicopter sequence at the end is Tom Cruise running away from an exploding fish tank. That's that's literally is that it? it. That's it. Oh, there's Tom Cruise hanging on a rope. Yeah. There is, they break into not, Langley, that's, not, that's, that's not pretty action, cool. Well, I mean, in terms of like, oh, this is the big action hero, what's your big stunt? Well, I'm going to blow up a fish tank with some chewing gum and then I'm going to run away from it? Legit. Yeah, but I like that. Like, and I like the, the plot and the twist worked and everything felt fresh and original back then, all the unmasking and disguise and who's who. I kind of wish that the franchise would go back to that sense that nobody team was safe. That was what was good about it. They had jeopardy and stakes. Definitely. Now I feel that they would tie themselves in knots to keep people alive rather than kill off, you know, Simon Pegg or Fing Rames or, or Jimmy Yeah, Ray. yeah. Uh, so it'd be nice to bring back a sense of that danger. You just want to kill people, you monster. Helen, things I tell you in private should never make it onto the podcast. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm happy with this. I think it's good. And I'm not just saying that because we have the Chris McQuarrie Rogue Nation Spoiler Special Podcast coming up on Monday. Uh, where I, he came at the, uh, in fact, he was sitting in this very chair, uh, and I, I talked to him for almost three hours now. As we know, it's going to be probably a two and a half hour podcast. It's amazing. So that's going to be up on Monday when the film is out on DVD and Blu-ray. Hooray! So yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting. I, you know, I wonder if any other director has even been tempted to come back before. Whereas I think that Macquarie was seen as an intrinsic part of this film's success, and I think the conversation started pretty much right away. Cool. So so there we go. A couple of other tidbits. As a bit of a fan of the theatre, 
Uh, I was very excited this week to hear about some Star Wars news uh, that J.J. Abrams brought aboard Lin-Manuel Miranda, the man behind Hamilton, the composer, the writer, the, the star of the show. Okay. It's the biggest thing on Broadway right now. It's it's a, a phenomenon on a level I can't even comprehend. Everyone's been to see it up to uh, President Obama and we haven't because it's really expensive and it's in New York. <laughs> but I've been listening to the soundtrack and the soundtrack is utterly astonishing. Anyway, he has written the new Cantina song for The, mm. for the Force Awakens. So basically, JJ brought him aboard. Uh, they worked for a couple of weeks, basically exchanging notes back and forth every day before Miranda went on stage and came up with a new cantina scene. Mm. To quote the soundtrack, and neither of you are going to get this because you haven't heard it yet, how's he going to say no to that, eh? You know, when, when JJ comes calling? <laughs> I mean, he's not throwing away his shot, is he? <laughs> uh, that was hilarious if you heard Hamilton. Good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Well, and what's it going to sound like? Um, I imagine it's going to sound, you know, boopy and boppy, uh, like the original Cantina song, because you want to keep some of that that lightness and that bounce. Hamilton itself is a is a rap musical. It has like everything in it. It is an astonishingly lengthy book, but because it's rap, they can deliver all that lyricism in one two and a half three hour burst. Uh, but it's, uh, I imagine it'll be pretty good. Is what I'm saying. Holy cow! Yeah. Holy cow! Uh, let's stick on Star Wars. For okay. a second, and bring in some Harrison Ford news as well. Bit of a wide-ranging one, this one. So this week, Steven Spielberg has said that there are no plans to replace Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. Correct. So if they do an Indiana Jones 5, it will be with Harrison Ford. Correct. Racking the whip, wearing the leather jacket, denying that his son, Mutt, played by Shia LaBeouf, ever existed. <laughs> Correct. Uh, hopefully that was a dream. I don't know what you mean by that. There was apparently a fourth film. Huh? No, we've talked about this, no, like, a lot on the podcast. No, believe me, I googled this. Really? Yeah. They even went so far as to give it a name, Indiana Jones and right. the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> It'll never work. But whether they ever got around to filming it, I don't know. But yes, so there we go. So that's one thing. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. <gasps> plans to replace Harrison Ford are afoot. What? In the Star Wars spin the first. Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who previously, previously, on Phil Lord and Chris Miller, uh, can do no wrong whatsoever. So they're, they're just amazing. They have taken the reins of the Han Solo prequel. Mm-hmm. which mm, is tricky because it means you have to find a young Harrison Ford. Yeah. So apparently over two and a half thousand, this is a story in Hollywood Reporter, over two and a half thousand actors have auditioned, <laughs> hopefully all at the same time, uh, in a sort of Britain's Got Talent, you know, X Factor style So they're all queuing yeah. up at the XL. Just see who shoots yeah. first. See who shoots first. <laughs> and they'd run through an assault course and little pop-ups of Greedo appear. Uh, and on the list are some names we know. Okay. And then names we don't know. So apparently people who have auditioned for the role, I'm going to read out some names and you're going to tell me whether you think they have what it takes mm-hmm. to capture the charisma, the magnetism, the insouciance. Ooh, good word. The voice mm. of a young Harrison Ford. Right. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, here we go. Aaron Taylor Johnson. I'm going to go ahead and say no. With no disrespect to him, Mm -hmm. I can't think of anything that says Han Solo about him. Can I just say, if there's two and a half thousand of these, we may not want to be giving explanations (laughs) for all of them. No, I'm just going to go to the names, the the big names that are in the uh, the piece. All right? Okay. No? No. Okay. Miles Teller. No. No. Dave Franco. (laughs) More than the other two. (laughs) More no than the other two. Do you think so? No, more yes well, than I'd say two. more yes than the other two, if personally. Oh, he's a bit on. too cheeky. Okay. You know, he's a bit. You know. I I feel like this is all a bad idea, so I may be the wrong person because I feel like I'm going to say no to everyone. But carry on, carry on. Other names in the frame are Ansel Elgort, who will next be seen, of course, in Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. I mean, he's he's young. 
younger than the rest. I mean, the rest are coming up on, frankly, the age that Harrison Ford was when he did Star Wars. Star Wars, yeah. Whereas Elgort's a good 10 years yet less than that, I would have said. We can make some useful fault in their Star Wars type puns. There you go. So that that's would be true. fun. So that's helpful. Yeah. They that should consider that. Phil and Chris, if you're listening, I know you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. saying. Logan Lerman. No. Uh, no. No, heck no. Didn't he prove himself with fury? That he no. could do more than just look cute? I, f- I feel like he's... he's mm. No, I just... I'm not feeling it. Nice chat, but... The last name here is Jack Rayner. Yeah. Hmm. Jack oh, Rayner. That's, that's the first time you haven't immediately gone, nope. Bill Lord and Chris Miller, I mean, if anyone can do it, they can do it. I mean, they have a long list of things to do. Can, can they not focus on something else? So you can't think of anyone around this age group, say, 18 to 25, who, if they were to be announced, if you woke up tomorrow and they were sitting on the edge of your bed, no, if you woke up tomorrow <laughs> and you read a, a story saying, such and such has been cast as young Han Solo, that you would go, oh, I get that. Like when John Bernthal was cast as a Punisher, everybody, everybody. Oh yeah, everyone's like, yeah, I get that. Oh yeah, yeah, I get that. that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't, I can't think of any, but maybe there will be someone that we're just not thinking of. The Punisher though is a comic book creation, right? So people have, there's other iterations of the Punisher. Yeah. There's only one iteration of Harrison Ford, (laughs) of Han Solo. Yeah. So you're asking someone to be Harrison Ford effectively, which is not that easy. Yeah. I don't think it's a regular idea. River Phoenix did it though. And there have been other... Okay, I will accept River Phoenix. If someone resurrects River Phoenix... But again, I'm not sure I I would have wanted to see River Phoenix as an entire movie. And also, River Phoenix's Han Solo is actually a different thing from River Phoenix's Indiana Jones. Because as Indiana Jones, he got to portray messing up and being a little bit unsure of things. And he was really good at both of those. And I'm not sure he's quite so good at shooting first and Mm. kissing Princess Leia. So, you know... Also, because of the character, he is obviously an important cog in that movie, but he doesn't do the dramatic heavy lifting, does he? He does, turns on, does the fun stuff. Shoots Greedo, kisses people, scooches around with Chewie. He's not really doing the sort of the, the hardcore Jedi stuff that Luke has to do, that Mark Hamill has to do in that film. And yet here we've got a film where he's going to have to do all of that, presumably, with that backstory, etc. Good so point. I think that's a different proposition as well for the character, as well as the actor. So there's a lot of levels where this could be a bit iffy, but I agree with you about Lord and Miller. In Lord and Miller, we trust, right? What if they cast themselves? I think that it sounds like everyone, everyone hates auditioning and casting people aside. Obviously, that's their jobs, but directors and actors, and they don't like this. Is sounds hardcore. Can you remember one as high profile as this with so many actors involved? Yeah, I mean, every time they, they cast Spider Man, uh, <laughs> there seems to be a lot of people involved. I believe there were quite a few nominees for Scarlett O'Hara. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact that they're auditioning 2,500 people and they've almost now opened it up, that's, that's interesting to me. Yeah. It, it maybe says that this is a very tricky task. And also you might be better with an unknown who doesn't carry any baggage from previous films. Yeah. So. I thought Garrett Hedlund, uh, in his first scene in Pan, seemed to be auditioning for the role. Yes, he did the, very the, much. Yes. So. And the You're rest right. of the film happened and he was just like... Well, oh, yeah. Well, that was the role of Indy more than, more than yeah. Pan, wasn't it? But, but he had that sort of, that Ford swagger. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which Han Solo has, yeah. I would say, more than, than, than Indy. But, but again, uh, he's not that young. He's not that young. Dave Franco's in his 30s. Yeah. Is he? Yeah. Apparently Miles Rami Malek has been auditioned for this and he's 33, 34. I imagine Rami Malek, as much as I love him, mm. playing and solo but who knows who knows we shall find out in due course because it's it's due out in May uh, 2018 so Sylvester Stallone yeah has entered the Oscar race by revisiting one of his beloved characters Rocky Balboa in Creed and this week for example he picked up a Best Supporting Actor win at the the National Board of Film Review who gave Mad Max Film of the Year and is in the States obviously Mad Max Film of the Year Fury Road and Sly Stallone, Best Supporting Award for Creed. He's fantastic, and he's now seems to become the front runner to actually win an Oscar in that category. 
Who would have thought? I mean, uh, thought? it's very early days and the NBR is often out of line with the rest of award season, we, we should say. Uh-huh. But certainly, yeah, it's a, it's a very good sign for him. But there's something in the air, there's something in the award, you can almost feel it, that it may actually happen. All right, Galadriel. Um, but it's interesting. So this week, the news has come through that Stallone is uh, going to play Rambo again, but not in a film, but on a TV series, because Fox have ordered Rambo New Blood as a TV pilot. Uh-huh. And in it, Stallone would play Rambo, teaming up with his son to presumably take down a dictator of the week. So, right. But, but I just find it interesting. It's like suddenly you are in a period in your career when the plaudits that have often been denied to you are coming your way. And the first thing you do is make a TV show. That's interesting. Maybe this has been in the works for a long time and it's been the TV company's call to announce it right now and to take advantage of all that. But also, I mean, TV is, is better than it's ever been. It's, it's hardly a mark of shame anymore. Maybe he sees this as something to be equally proud of, you know? Absolutely. You never know. I should also say, if we're talking about films of the year, that not only did it here the cinema release their top 10 of the year this week, but Empire announced our top 20 of the year. Phil collated all the votes. So everybody who works, for, uh, who writes for Empire or designs for Empire put together a list of their top 10 of the year and then Phil added up the votes mm-hmm. That's why the look of silence is number one. And that's why. <laughs> Phil added the photos and added a thousand to the look of silence. So what's number one, Phil? I mean, that, well, we won't spoil too much for everyone, but I think it's a good list. It's a good list that reflects, you know, the kind of movies that people go and see, but there's also some, you know, really, really interesting, you know, art house indie movies on there as well. There are. But what's number one? Number one is Mad Max Fury Road. It's the last thing I would have expected. Nobody would no, have wait expected the first. that. No one would have expected that. And where did Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 come? He came in 21st. <laughs> oh, so close. So there close. won't be appearing on the list, but trust us, Blarters, it's out there. <laughs> Speaking of exciting times, we're going to get on to uh, movie reviews in a second. But Adam Sandler's Ridiculous 6 is about to hit on Netflix. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm excited about it. I mean, I, I could not be more excited about seeing Vanilla Ice as Mark Twain. The greatest sentence of our times, Vanilla Ice is Mark Twain. And that noise you can hear is zombie Mark Twain coming back. <laughs> Currently rampaging this way through Hollywood until he gets to the person who thought of that. <laughs> and shaken by the hand. Of saying, course, well of course, because he's, well he's delighted. Uh, before we get on to this week's guest, I'm going to say one last thing about Netflix. Yes, we're watching Jessica Jones. Yes, we love it. Yes, we're trying to do a spoiler a special podcast but in the run up to Christmas we're very very busy and we may not get around to doing it this year and I can't guarantee we'll get around to doing it next year either but we're, we're trying we're trying okay should we have a guest sure let's have a guest this week's guest is a comedy legend who started out on TV in Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In she bagged an Oscar nom with her first real film Robert Altman's Nashville uh, and has along the way made the likes of 9 to 5 All of Me and I Heart Huckabees I love All of Me in particular and Big Business others. and Big Business who could forget Big Business I loved Big Business uh, she is of course the great Lily Tomlin who stars in next week's Grandma our new bloke John Junior Nugent Went along to speak to her this week. There are some slight issues with the sound here, apparently. So hopefully that won't impair your enjoyment, but just prepare your ears in case. I think my understanding is a little bit of, hey, let's talk over here. We'll go a little bit off mic and blah, blah, blah. It's a bit like that. But do enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by Lily Tomlin. Hello, how are you? Hi, how are you, John? I'm very well. Glad to be here. We're obviously here to talk about grandma. Am I right in thinking this part was written for you? Well, that's uh, that's what Paul has told me. Paul White's the director, writer, director. I did another film with him, Admission, in which I played Tina Fey's mother. I played a kind of feminist writer character in, in that film, and uh, we had a good time making the movie and all that. And after we finished it, Paul wrote, called me and said, "I have an idea I want to talk to you about." And he said, "Can you meet me in for lunch or something?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." 
And he told me that he was writing something with me in mind. And about a week later, a couple of days later, he handed me a script. And he said, as he'd said before, I wrote this with you in mind. And I thought, oh, rats, what if I don't like it? I'm thinking I'm just about spelling a bit. And he's, and so I, I did read it, and I thought it was quite wonderful. And so I was glad of that. I, then I could just hop, you know, really be enthusiastic about joining him in the project. And uh, then he brought it. Everybody he hired was so great for the role that they played. So that's how that started. Obviously, it's very complimentary to have a role written for you, but did you also find it slightly insulting? I mean, he's this, <laughs> this character is... I never thought of the word insulting, but it is daunting. What I mean by insulting, I guess, is that this character is very cantankerous. <laughs> oh, I guess so, but and, I... And sort of prone to I just, violence I think I just meant he thought I could play it well. Sure. I'm hoping. <laughs> <laughs> There's obviously a great cast in this film. Great, wonderful, yeah. You get to land a kiss on Sam Elliott's... What is it like coming face-to-face with that Tash? Oh, the Tash. Oh, the Tash. Oh, that's good. (laughs) He was a very good kisser, too. He was very easy to kiss. Obviously, you're working with Martin Sheen in in Grace and Frankie, who you also work with in The West Wing. Wing. We're we're huge Aaron Sorkin fans at Empire. Um, Yeah, I am, too. Is there any sort of classic West Wing moments that particularly stand out for you? Oh, God. I I was awfully glad to be on that show. I mean, I had sort of lobbied for it to get on that show. I, when I saw it on the air, I was so devastated that I wasn't on it. I said, how could this have passed me by? And so I sent word to, I had my agent call them and ask if I could do a guest arc or something. So anyway, so they were going to have a, a new secretary uh, come and work at the White House. And he set, Aaron set me up so well because I had been, I'd worked at the White House and I'd been fired because I was too mouthy or too whatever. And uh, she's somewhat like Elle, uh, Debbie Fitterer was. Uh, I mean, she was outspoken and called it when she saw it and so on. And then I was an alpaca farmer. I was a professional gambler. I had a lot going for me. Yeah, I I loved uh, Aaron Sorkin. I thought he was terrific. She's such a great character. I mean, how do you think she would handle the current White House, or even the future White House? Like, how would Deborah handle a President Trump, for example? As oh, she might do to him what she did to Sage's boyfriend. Yeah. She'd like... <laughs> I think she'd uh, have a field day. You've had such a great career. Uh, looking over your CV or, or resume, as you might say, uh, it's there's so many classics on there. I wanted to ask a little bit about All of Me. Oh, um, I love that movie. What a great movie. What were your experiences? What were your memories of that? Because obviously a lot of it, you're essentially in the mirror. Did you ever sort of yeah, interact yeah. with, with, well, with I, Steve? Well, I mean, I t- uh, with Carl, and Carl Reiner directed it, you know. Hmm. And, uh, and he, I, he was supposed to end up dancing with uh, Victoria Tennant, the stableman's daughter. And I was lobbying. I said, Carl, he's got to end up dancing with me. The audience doesn't want him to see him end up with the stableman's daughter, who is like a... Uh, two-timing, you know, uh, manipulative uh, female who's backing him into this uh, romantic situation with herself to inherit all his money and all that stuff, or to inherit my money and spend it with Steve. I said, they, the audience wants to see him dance with me at the end. And so he finally uh, shot it with me, reflect when we pass the mirror, then he's dancing with me. So that was very important to the plot. And I thought Steve was just so good in it, so physical and wonderful. 
And he and Dick Libertini ad-libbed that whole thing, back and bowl, back and bowl. They just did that as a matter of course one day on the set. So I, I liked the movie extremely. It's so great. <laughs> Another thing that really stood out for me from uh, your career, and this is perhaps more personal, I'm of a generation raised by the Magic School Bus. Oh, my gosh. Which, obviously, you were the, oh, I the voice of so much. the frizz. That show taught me a lot. A lot. A I lot. know if you were a little tyke looking at Magic School Bus, learning all sci- kinds of science. That's right. That was great. Yeah. I listen, kids in my family... If I, when I go, I made that in 93 mostly. And uh, I'd be sitting with like a three or four year old or a five year old, maybe a little cousin or something. And Magic School Bus would come on and they'd look at it. Because I don't look anything like the Frizz. She looks more like Bette Midler or someone. And they'd say, they'd watch the TV and then they'd look at me and they'd say, now you say it. Because I told them I, was, I did the voice of Miss Frizzle. And uh, they, don't, they didn't believe me. They looked at me funny. And so they would, like, audition me while it was playing. And I'd have to say, wonderful observation, Arnold. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I heard it's gone on Netflix now. That's right, yes. There's a reboot. Is it the same old show, or are they making a new show? I think it's it's entirely new. I think they did CGI. I think it is. Oh, they've got to cast me as Miss Frizzle. Make some calls. Yeah. My agent called me the other day and said, uh, but that was quite a few weeks ago, and they might have well cast it and gone forward with it and without me. I mean, if they have, that's a crying shame. It is, it's because shame. kids, that messes up kids' minds. Yeah. You remember me, the, me or whatever I sounded like, and then someone pulls that out from under you. It's not good. The classic episodes are still on YouTube, you know. I had a bit of a nostalgic watch of them all, and it's, it's so good. Are you ever tempted when you're in a car just to say, seatbelts, everyone? Just to <laughs> Yeah, of course. To the bus. Exactly. My favorite thing of Miss Frizzles is take chances, make mistakes, get messy. Yes, words to live by. Yeah. So back in the 70s, 1975, I think, you were Oscar-nominated yeah, for, for, for Nashville. Nashville. There are rumblings you could be Oscar-nominated again this yes, year. Yes, 40 ex- years later. 40 years later, that's right. How, how does the experience compare? I mean, were, was there like... Well, there's much more emphasis on all that. I mean, the, the media is much more into... Uh, expanding upon the showbiz things that are going on. I mean, there's a, like a demand for it. The culture is so celebrity-obsessed, and, and seem, they seem to know so much about stars' lives and what they're doing, and, and the press uh, aids them in that, you know, I mean, the, the tabloid press. But to go out and kind of beat the drum and try to, you know, I just didn't want to do it, and I didn't think other people of any kind of simple, clear thinking wanted to do it. So, And I got nominated, but and that was even, it was a big stunner because I was coming off of laughing, and people thought and didn't even think that I should be doing a movie. I mean, people didn't cross over from television. It was really, it was, Goldie had done it. She had gone in to make cactus flower or something. And, uh, and I, people thought I was Ernestine anyway, so. How do you feel then about all this talk of Oscars and awards? Well, I think it's nice. I mean, I'm glad that, that people have that response to me and, the, and to the film. Have you thought much about acceptance speeches? You could be giving quite a few over the next few months. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought of... Uh, I did think of uh, Ruth Gordon's acceptance. You know, you can see it on YouTube if you want to. She, when she won for Rosemary's Baby, 
She was in, she was about my, probably my age, somewhere around there. And she's so charming anyway. And she had her hair pulled all up around and a knot on top of her head. And she goes up to the dais and she wins. And uh, she says, I can't tell you how encouraging a thing like this can be. <laughs> so I thought I might lift that if I get in a tight spot and I have to come up with something. Lily Tomlin, thank you very much for speaking to us today. Thank you. I totally enjoyed it. Okay, so Grandma is going to be reviewed on next week's show, but it's a big week at the multiplexes this week, so we're going to start with a Christmas comedy, The Night Before. Hooray! Hello. So this is the comedy we've been missing, I think, at Christmas, in that we have not had a sort of Seth Rogen stoner Christmas comedy. I mean, how have we survived all this time? I guess our repeated viewings of A Very Harold and Kumar Christmas can now have a little break because we have another option. So this is about three 30-something friends played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's a kind of... He was orphaned at Christmas and so his friends rallied around him, but he's never quite moved forward with his life as a result. So that's Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Ethan. Then there's Seth Rogen as Isaac, who's about to become a father and is a little bit worried about that. Obviously, it's a big change in his life. And finally, there's Anthony Mackie as Chris, who is an NFL star who's just hitting his stride in his career despite being in his mid-30s. They are buddy, buddy, buddies. They head out for one last Christmas bash because really the time has come to grow up and stop doing this and getting completely wasted every year. And they're in search of a thing called the Nutcracker Ball. This is a party they've been hearing about for years. They've never actually managed to find out where it is, how to get into it. But this is the year. This is the one that's going to make it happen. And unfortunately, along the way, Seth Rogen decides to take lots of drugs that his wife gave him as a thank you for being so supportive through the pregnancy. And things go a little bit skew-whiff, as you would expect. It's, I mean, this is actually, as you'd expect from these guys, it's really warm-hearted. It's really good on the sort of just the romance and the, the genuine male friendship between these guys. It bends over backwards to be cheery and Christmassy, sometimes to the extent of getting in its own way of being cheery and Christmassy. This thing has more endings than Return of the King. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, it's it's quite likeable for that. And it is very funny at times. Seth Rogen has a meltdown in a church that is one of my scenes of the year. I thought it was absolutely hilarious. So while it is completely ramshackle, completely rambling... And of course, a little bit too long. You know, you kind of come out with a bit of a glow. So it is quite likable. The other thing I should say, Michael Shannon is the comedy standout of Mm. the year. More so than Kevin James as Paul Blart. I mean, obviously, that's his biggest competition. But honestly, Michael Shannon here is hilarious. Does he ride a segue? Does he fall off in a comedic fashion? No, he doesn't do either of those things. I'm sorry, but James has it. But, But he does sell drugs in an interesting manner. So. I love the uh, the shots this week of Michael Shannon turning up at the uh, the premiere of the night before in LA wearing the just a lovely Christmas jumper, a very Christmassy jumper. Yeah, and and then he's, he's got just, Michael Shannon's face. He's got Michael Shannon's face, and you're kind of going, the, one of these things is not like the others, and it, it's it's so lovely. I'm intrigued because obviously he's very very funny in the film. He's a bit of a comedy secret weapon. He is, movie. yeah, very much. He's, so. he's really been held back from the marketing. You know, I didn't <laughs> even really know he was in it until I, uh, yeah. until he pops up. But it's interesting because Seth Rogen started the year with the interview, in which you know, he nearly killed the human race at yeah. the beginning of the year. So I think it's important now that he has this <laughs> movie that makes us all feel a little bit better about ourselves. Yeah, a little bit better. Uh, yeah, they've, they've got a deep comedy bench at this point. They have a lot of people they can call on to come in for a scene and just blow it out of the park. You've got Lizzie Kaplan as Gordon Levitt's love interest, who's quite fun. Gillian Bell from 22 Jump Street is great as Rogan's wife. She's really likeable. And then there are a couple of celebrity cameos that I'm not going to give away, but, you know, they earn their money. Absolutely. And uh, Lizzie Kaplan, of course, on the big screen will be seen next in the most anticipated film of 2016, Now You See Me, the second act. 
think I'm kidding that this promotion is made a film 2016. I'm, I kind of am. You're kind of, you kind of are. I'm kind of not. But yes, three stars then for the night before, which as we always say in the podcast, is a recommendation. Is, because, is. you know, it's Christmas. It's a time of miracles. You know, be a bit warm-hearted. Maybe, you know, give it a fourth star in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> or don't, it's up to you. Or don't, it's entirely, it's entirely your thing. Should we stick with the theme of Christmas? Yeah, go on. Krampus. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, you By just that... answered to Krampus. That's weird. <laughs> I knew there was something different about Phil. It was the horns. It'd be. The foul. Ain't too nice to be a Krampus. Well, if you're familiar with the folklore, or uh, say the offspring of some form of alpine woodcutter, you'll know that Krampus is a horned beast creature that preys on people that aren't in the festive spirit at Christmas time. And uh, so if you think of, say, the the one that got kicked out of where the wild things are, the wild things for being a massive psychopath, that's Krampus. <laughs> um, and this film is a comedy horror which bases, is sort of based around another Max, a character called Max Engel, who is a cute moppet played by MJ Anthony, who does that exact thing. He basically revolts against the spirit of Christmas, makes a big Boom. stand against it, the little shit, and <laughs> uh, and summons Krampus into his home <gasps> See, and into the neighbourhood. to the moon where he is forever doomed. Spoiler. No. No, he isn't banished to the moon, no. But... But the neighbourhood is cleared mysteriously of other people and suddenly you're faced with a some form of sort of a siege movie, effectively, with this creature. And and, uh, in the house you have his parents, played by Adam Scott and Tony Collette. Uncle Howard, played by David Ketchner, of course, from Anchorman and The American Office, is the kind of comic relief boozy, boozy rally who's over to stay. And the family comes up against it from this malevolent beast and what follows is so much fun it's a real surprise this film we haven't had a lot of chance to kind of see it and chew over it but we've given it four stars because um, it summons the the spirit of those 80s kind of horror comedies where they really managed to nail yeah, that yeah. tone between the others obviously the gremlins is the one that's sort of this one evokes the spirit of the most it's a little scarier than gremlins has to be said and it's got it's got a bit more violence in it probably played more for horror than laughs but but a nice balance between the two and all the cast really buy into both sides of it which is nice and which which really helps it work I'm going to say it's not a surprise because it's written and directed by Michael Doherty who is not only the co-writer of X-Men 2 and Superman Returns but the guy who wrote and directed Trick or Treat a few years ago which is fantastic. If you haven't seen Trick or Treat it's a great scary Halloween portmanteau piece. Very, very good. Alexa Brian Cox and Anna Paquin are in it and he's a man who knows his way around the uh, prequely funny. So yeah, four stars. Exactly four stars right. For Krampus. Don't Krampus his style. Oh dear. No. 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 No, 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 no. Give it a go, it's Christmas. Should we move on to Sunset Song? I think that's a good idea. <laughs> All right, so this is the return of the great Terence Davies. That's correct. Terence Davies is back, and this is only his seventh film in, in a career, in a gilded career that spanned, I guess, four decades now. But weirdly, it's his second in three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's really <laughs> he's turning really them out. Awesome. The obvious kind of touch point for this one would be Terence, another Terence, Terence Malick, because this one is more of a, his films have kind of best known for being set in sort of semi-autobiographically in Liverpool where he grew up. Of course, the last one was The Deep Blue Sea, which was a wartime, sort of post-war London set. Kind of tragic romance, I guess. This one is tinged with tragedy as well. The revelation in this film is is Agnes Dean, who's been in a couple of movies and and got good notices, the remake of the Nicholas Wynn and Riffin film Pusher and Electricity, which was a sort of less seen indie film last Mm. year. And she's really, really very good in this film. Um, She plays a character called Chris Guthrie. The film is based on a 
classic Scottish novel by Lewis Grassic Gibbon from 1932. It's set in the boondocks of Aberdeenshire and it's it's a kind of a hard knock life for her, to put it mildly. Everyone else in her family basically dies or tries to molest her and um, it's not happy tidings. Her father, played by Peter Mullen, is the molester, a man who's a, basically a bully and transgressive and her brother is shipped off I think other siblings die, her mother dies. She really has it tough. But that's not to say this film is, is kind of weighed down by its own misery. It, the, you know, there's moments of uplift and she finds romance with Kevin Guthrie, who you may remember from Sunshine on Leith. Oh, yes. um, he's very, very good in this. And Indeed. it stretches a little long over the two-hour mark, which is unusual for Terence Davis movies, but it's, you know, it spans a period of history that leads up to the First World War. Yeah. It's tough and gritty and it's elevated by... Two really good central performances and Peter Mullen. 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 Probably not the subject matter for that one, but Peter Mullen is, you know, he's tough in this. It's it's, beautiful looking, hence the Terence Malick cornfield lovers will find plenty to like in this one. We've given it four stars. Four stars. So so look out for it. It's certainly a different sort of movie from the others. I guess if you liked Carol, for instance, recently, and who didn't, this one might be worth a look. And Agnes Dean is another model-slash-actress who's doing great things. Absolutely. Four stars then for Sunset Song. The reason that we were singing Peter Mullen to the tune of The Proclaimers' 500 Miles, by the way, is that when Team Empire goes to karaoke, we usually end up singing that song. Yeah. And we've... We've noticed over the years that when the the proclaimers go, it's easier and better just to slip in Peter Mullen instead. So we sing Peter Mullen's name in karaoke. And interesting enough, Peter Mullen is actually going to be a guest on the podcast next week. Yeah, I'm not going to be here, so someone else is going to have to tell him that story in his face and see what happens. So I'm very intrigued. Uh, Who's interviewing him? We haven't decided yet. Phil, I'm really sorry, but you are. I'm away next week. (laughs) I'm away. I'm fine myself. When's it happening? I'm I'm busy. I am washing my hair. (laughs) I'm having major work done. Right, four stars ever since that song. And that's the last one we're going to discuss in depth this week. Also out this week is Daniel Radcliffe and James McAvoy in Victor Frankenstein, Paul McGuigan's Victor Frankenstein, based on the book. Victor Frankenstein. Victor Frankenstein, based on the movie tie novelization of I, Frankenstein. We gave this four stars. Yes, I haven't seen it yet. I do want to because I think both stars are, are great. Yes. I can't wait to see it, so fingers yes. crossed. But yeah, sorry we can't say more. And that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more formulated fun. We will be joined, as I've said... By the brilliant Peter Mullen. He's also in a film called Hector, which is out next week. Yes. And Sunset Song. And possibly, oh my God, I hope this happens. Tina Fey. <gasps> I really hope this happens. That would be amazing. I know. Liz Lemon in the house. Wow. I want wow. to go to there. That would be extraordinary. <laughs> uh, so I hope that happens. But if it doesn't, Peter Mullen is ample all by himself. Until then, it is goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It is goodbye from Helen. Fare thee well. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to Krampus someone's style. Oh, oh no. Krampus your style. I'm going to make it work, Helen. Even if it kills me. See you next week. 